This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Cool. Welcome, everyone. Um, my name is Promise Lee, and I'm a member of Internationalism from Below, um, among other groups, Lausanne Collective, um, DSA, etc. Um, just want to welcome everyone to this event, um, what's happening in Sri Lanka. And uh, for those of us who are waking up early in the morning, um, you know, good morning or good evening, depending on where you're stepping in from. We're excited to have you. Um, just a short intro about IFB, Internationalism from Below, who's hosting this. We're a grassroots all-volunteer network of socialist internationalists whose primary orientation is to support and popularize mass struggles from below working class and oppressed peoples throughout the world. IFB opposes all kinds of state and imperial violence and aims to provide a positive alternative to the elements of the anti-war left that whitewashes the violence of various repressive regimes. So we just want to briefly shout out to our two co-sponsors, um, which have signed on um, over the past week, uh, South Asian Left Activist Movement, which um, had an amazing event also with one of their speakers, Neil Anthony, um, just uh, earlier this week, earlier this weekend, and also the International Solidarity Committee of um, an anti-war group based in the U.S., the Dissenters. Um, thank you for those two groups for co-sponsoring uh, the event today. And um um, we look forward to you know collaborating more with our, our, our ally organizations and friends um, moving forward. Um, so yeah, um, as folks who are following in the news know, I think um, Sri Lanka has been facing its greatest economic political crisis um, um, probably since independence, one of the greatest upsurges. Um, over the past week or two, a lot has been happening. Um, protesters have, have burned a lot of the ruling party MPs' houses. Um, it's become uh, rapidly one of the kind of biggest mass movements in Asia in recent months and uh, possibly offering um, an important challenge to neoliberalism, right? And the kind of post the IMF consensus, right? That have entrapped a lot of economies and countries of the global South. And so in this panel, we're going to explore with the speakers here we have um, on, you know, what's happening in Sri Lanka, right? And give some basic context for folks who are signing in who might be interested in what's happening in the region, but not know enough context um, 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 to move forward the program. And we'll end, we'll end with some recommendations or suggestions for solidarity, especially for those of us in the West, to see how we can keep supporting this movement and you know better understand and unpack um, what type of uh, impact that this movement is, is having in terms of transforming our understanding of what a post-IMF, post-neoliberalism globalization movement can look like and what resistance can look like to that. So briefly, um, we'll run through the program. It'll be about 90 minutes um, and we'll have a Q&A after the speakers have gone. And please shoot your questions in the uh, YouTube chat and um, we'll comb through and ask a couple of those questions um, and uh, wrap up the panel from there. So I'll read out the speaker's bios right off the bat, and I'll pass it on to a first speaker after that. 
Um, so our first speaker is Devika Gunawardena, an independent researcher who holds a PhD from the University of California, Los Angeles, with a general focus on political economy. Our second speaker, Rohini Hensman, is a writer, researcher, and activist who comes from Sri Lanka and is a resident in India who has written extensively on workers' rights, feminism, uh, minority rights, globalization, and a Marxist approach to struggles for democracy. Her recent books are include Workers, Unions, and Global Capitalism, Lessons from India, and Indefensible, Democracy, Counter-Revolution, and the Rhetoric of Anti-Imperialism, which I'll add is you know a really important book for myself and for the mission of IFB. So really grateful for being here for a number of reasons beyond that. Um, and also written two novels to do something beautiful inspired by her work with working class women in trade unions in Bombay and playing lions and tigers set in Sri Lanka. And our final speaker is Neanthony Kadirgamar, a PhD student in education at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's also part of the Feminist Collective for Economic Justice, which has issued a really, really um, brilliant statement um, a couple of weeks ago about the economic crisis from a feminist angle. I encourage folks to read that. Um, if you check out the bio to our Eventbrite, there's a link to that statement. Without further ado, um, again, really, really grateful for all three speakers for being here. And um, I'll pass it on to Devika to start us up. Thank you, Promise, for that uh, wonderful introduction and for the opportunity to talk here about, a, I think, you know, a really uh, burning crisis that, you know, has a lot of implications for, for a lot of different countries. And so thank you all for um, agreeing to put this event together. My name is Devika Gunawardena, uh, pronouns are he, uh, him and his. And today in my presentation, I will be giving sort of a broad um, I would say political economic overview of uh, where the crisis in Sri Lanka is heading and also its causes. So there's already been a lot of changes that have happened um, over the past week. And so it's going to be very challenging to analyze it, I think, going forward, because we are looking at the intervention of very powerful external actors, which I will talk about briefly uh, later in my presentation. But for now, I think it helps to lay the groundwork to really understand this crisis uh, from the perspective of neoliberalism and what it's looked like in Sri Lanka. And so if we take the sort of two broad arguments that are being made by um, uh, predominantly neoliberal, but not always, uh, think tanks that we could call the economic establishment in Sri Lanka, they argue that the crisis is caused by, I would say, two major factors. One is money printing or a loose monetary policy. And the other are tax cuts that the current government led uh, initiated in 2019 when um, he first came into power. So by addressing these arguments, I also want to look at, as I mentioned before, the underlying causes. So if we take, for example, what's happening now in terms of the prices of essential goods, um, just to give you an example, uh, food inflation was 30% in the month of March alone. Um, the cost of living is skyrocketing for people, and there are queues of essential goods, including fuel. And so for all these reasons, um, one of the arguments made is that the government had printed too much money, and then what it acted was as like sort of like a pump for exports, uh, or for, sorry, for imports from abroad, and that further um, 
worsen the balance of payments deficit. But the main argument is that the government in, in that sense is responsible. Um, but if you look again at sort of what's happening globally, it's pretty clear that food, the cost of food, for example, is is going up everywhere. In fact, the Food and Agriculture Organization's food price index mentions that from March 2021 to March of this year, 2022, again, uh, food prices have gone up by about 30 percent. So the crisis in Sri Lanka is particularly uh, more difficult because what has happened really is that um, there's been a lot of hoarding, especially by you know traders. For example, the mill owners last year, the government attempted to impose price controls uh, on the price of rice and the mill owners rejected it. And so, again, if people in an economic crisis are expecting the prices to go up further, then there can also be uh, those kinds of shortages. So it's not exactly clear that you know, money printing specifically is the cause. And there's been a lot of debate, especially in Sri Lanka, over the degree to which, you know, certain unorthodox theories are responsible. But I would just bottom line this by saying, really, the problem is that the government did not invest in production. They did not ameliorate the supply constraints that were caused by shortages of goods. And, you know, despite their rhetoric about domestic food production and all this, they actually undermine that production because, for example, the government um, had uh, tried to impose a ban on chemical fertilizers, and that just really threw, threw the whole food system out of whack. So there are a lot of different causes here, but we could say that globally, food prices have been going up, and especially in Sri Lanka, because of the inability to really impose price controls and invest in domestic production, that crisis has become even worse. Then you have other uh, factors too, for example, uh, if you look at fuel, um, the country is dependent on oil imports. And so from, say, April 2020, when the price of oil was about um, $25 a barrel, it's now skyrocketed to over $100 a barrel in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So there are these specific shocks that are now creating this sort of broad increase in prices. Um, so for carrying this forward, though, we have to also look and again, this is where, you know, a lot of the focus has been on the um, the budget deficit, which I'll get to in the second part of uh, my point uh, about these arguments. But really, uh, a primary challenge has been the balance of payments deficit. So Sri Lanka already owes um, debt. And again, that debt is mostly a lot of it is constituted by sovereign bonds, which are owed in financial markets. So about 40 percent of the external debt is sovereign bonds. A lot of the media, oftentimes they portray it as China's responsible. China's debt is responsible for all this. But Chinese debt, honestly, is about 10 percent of external debt. So it's really the sovereign bonds that have been the issue. And so when you're trying to pay the debt servicing costs on these sovereign bonds, it doesn't help if your balance of payments is also widening, which means imports and exports. So again, the rhetoric among think tanks and the economic establishment was that, you know, the government is imposing import restrictions. But really, the issue is that they couldn't really do that, because, for example, last year, uh, the balance of payments deficit was um, 12 billion 
12 billion dollars for exports and 20 billion dollars for imports so even in a major economic crisis sri lanka was importing more right and so this balance of payments deficit widened the current account deficit also widened so for example in 2021 um it went to um about minus four percent of gdp versus the previous year when it was minus 1.5 percent and so you can see that current account deficit is widening and that just makes it harder to uh, service the debt and so again the government strategy was really to delay and to ignore so they claimed that they could come up with a solution through bilateral swap agreements that tourism would recover because again one of sri lanka's main sources of foreign exchange was tourism uh, but they did not actually think about this uh, supposed in import substitution model that, you know, for example, the neoliberals criticized. Um, so that's really the, the, the broad argument about, uh, you know, money printing and inflation. And again, I would say, argue that it must be considered from the perspective of these supply constraints, especially in areas like food and fuel. And so we really have to think about what it would mean to actually transform the economy to reduce those imports and to prioritize essential supplies. The second um, argument that is made oftentimes by the economic establishment is that the tax cuts in 2019 are responsible uh, for this crisis. And again, uh, Sri Lanka's fiscal deficit has widened actually since the onset of the neoliberal economy. So in 1977, uh, J.R. Jayawardena came into power and he was prime minister at the time, but he centralized power and uh, made himself into the executive president. And in 1978, they ushered in what was called the open economy. And Sri Lanka was actually one of the first economies in the South Asian re region to uh, liberalize. And so they, you know, floated the exchange rate. They slashed tariffs. They cut the food subsidy. You know, they did all these changes, which they thought would appease um, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And um, what ended up happening is actually the deficit grew <laughs> during that period. But at the time, there was foreign aid and there was other financing available. Um, later on, you know, especially by, you know, the 2000s, um, financial markets started to provide a lot more of that external debt. And obviously, that comes at much higher interest rates. And so really, to finance the budget deficit, they started issuing sovereign bonds. So, again, if we look at the broad trends, you know, right now, government revenue is only about 9% of GDP and expenditure is about 20% of GDP. So there is a large gap. But again, to finance that deficit, they have really relied on external debt, especially uh, now in more recent years, these sovereign bonds. And so when you look at now the IMS proposals, for example, because because of this crisis, um, the IMF uh, released a staff report earlier this year, and they provided certain recommendations. And they said, you know, Sri Lanka does need to collect more taxes. OK, that's fair. But, you know, what kinds of taxes? Because, in fact, most of the taxes, about 80 percent, are what we would call regressive taxes. Um, you know, for example, the value added tax on goods and services. And so when you increase these it can increase the cost of supplies. Now, there are arguments starting to be made that, for example, that isn't as regressive as people think it is. But overall, we can agree that you need to increase, you know, income tax, right, corporate tax. 
But in especially in a economic crisis, as people, you know, such as my friend Ahlan Kadir have been pointing out, you know, when incomes are declining across the board, there really needs to be some type of wealth tax, right? And so, you know, all these um, financial elites, comprador elites in Sri Lanka, they have benefited from, you know, this sort of debt bubble, right? This speculation, for example, in real estate. I mean, even in Colombo, you can see the luxury high-rise buildings just, you know, um, being raised everywhere, right? So they have benefited from these various forms of speculation. So really, there needs to be now a wealth tax to, to handle the effects of this crisis. Um, but again, if we talk about raising taxes, I think we have to really think carefully that it is redistributive and not regressive. Um, so, you know, again, just in the, the broader context, um, I would say that, you know, these are these are major, major issues that have now come to a head because the traditional sources of foreign exchange like tourism, like migrant work and worker remittances have either collapsed or declined. You know, tourism went from 3.6 billion in 2019 to less than uh, less than a billion in, in, in 2020 with, you know, obviously with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, you know, migrant worker remittances declined by, you know, about 16 percent year over year. Right. From 20, I believe, from 2021, uh, 2020 to 2021. So the point is that there is pressure on these uh, sources of foreign exchange and who has been earning that foreign exchange it's primarily been working women, right? It's been the women in the garment factories. It's been the women working abroad. It's been the women working on the plantations. And so you're seeing now a massive social crisis because this system is unsustainable. And we really need to think seriously about what is the alternative. And the alternative cannot simply be, let's go to the IMF and they'll provide a solution, right? It has to actually come from rethinking the social contract in the country. Um, and again, you know, we, we want to talk taxes. Uh, who benefited from a lot of the tax concessions? It was private business and export processing zones, right? So all these arguments are interlinked. And so when you take one slice of it and you just say, ah, it's because of the 2019 tax cuts, you also have to look at the entire history of liberalization in Sri Lanka and what that's done to government revenue. So I guess... Um, you know, now the question comes, OK, so what is the IMF going to do? <laughs> and as I said before, they have put forward their recommendations. Um, and these include, as I mentioned before, raising taxes. And again, they say both indirect and direct taxes, floating the exchange rate, which they've done, um, increasing interest rates, which, again, there was an interest rate shock, really, um, in April. Uh, they increased the standing lending facility rate from uh, about seven and a half percent the previous month to 14 and a half percent in April, which is almost double. So you're increasing interest rates in a crisis. You're making it harder for businesses to borrow. And Sri Lanka's economy is already going through a financial crisis. So th th this is this is very dangerous. Uh, um, and then the other major issue is that the IMF is proposing cost recovery energy pricing. Now, what that means is they have been looking, for example, at the budget of uh, state-owned enterprises like the Salon Petroleum Corporation and the Salon Electricity Board. And they're saying, OK, these institutions are loss making. But if their solution is to raise the prices for ordinary people, um, people aren't going to have electricity, basically. And now they'll say, oh, well, actually, it's because... Um, 
you know, these subsidies mostly go to the rich who consume more electricity. Okay, fine. But then again, like there are other solutions here that don't involve, you know, making it impossible for people to have electricity by raising the price, you know. And so there one solution really at this point has been, you know, cash transfers. And so they are arguing that cash transfers can be targeted to the poor and the vulnerable. And that will like sort of manage the effects of this crisis. But the reality is that like, Everyone is suffering, um, right? I mean, that's why you've seen actually a lot of, you know, even quote unquote middle class protesters showing up to these protest sites in Colombo. Everyone is suffering and the price of goods is increasing. So a cash transfer is effectively going to be inflated away. So what seriously is your mechanism, right? How are you going to solve this crisis for people? And that's where some of us, um, especially as Anthony um, and others, they have put out a statement by the Feminist Collective for Economic Justice. We need a public or Sri Lanka needs a public distribution system, right? There needs to be a revival of um, sort of the, the, the system that allowed people to get essential supplies through rations, right? Through the cooperative wholesale establishment, through um, Lanka Santosa, which is basically this um, uh, uh, retail outlet for people to purchase, you know, uh, subsidized and lower priced goods, there needs to be a revival of that, right? So, again, as I mentioned before, all these um, issues are interlinked. Um, I'm not sure exactly. I think I have a few more minutes, so I'll just try to wrap up here. Um, so, really, the main takeaway I would argue from my presentation is that we need to delink this rhetoric about the budget deficit, which is where the IMF is really going to come in and say, you need to retrench, you need to slash, you need to cut. And the actual current account deficit, which is where Sri Lanka has run out of foreign exchange reserves, right? They went from about seven to eight billion, right, before the pandemic to now practically zero. You need to think about what it means to actually prioritize imports. Now, all of these issues, though, are sort of like being overdetermined uh, by the political situation. So I, you know, in my presentation, I actually uh, don't have as much space to go over the chaotic events of last week. But needless to say, the people have been out in force. They have been out in force for months, really. Um, but it started to converge. And their main demand is that Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the president, should resign, must resign. Um, but you know, the president actually basically threw his brother under the bus and got him to resign, and, you know, stayed in power and through various maneuvering and, you know, other sorts of tactics. They have put in now a prime minister named Raniel Vikramasinghe, who in an earlier incarnation, you know, was behind a lot of the neoliberal agenda in Sri Lanka. You know, even when he came in in 2002, on the one hand, they were talking about a peace process with the Tamil Tigers during the civil war at the time. But on the other hand, they were talking about privatization, right? And what this did, and I'm sure Roni also uh, probably has more to say on this far more than I do, but like, you know, what this did is this provoked a nationalist reaction, right? Because you had these neoliberal policies and the nationalists were the ones who came and attacked it and said they're trying to sell the country. Well, the challenge now is that Raniel just came out with a statement, like literally within the past couple of hours. And one of the first things he said is we need to privatize Sri Lankan airlines. So like if this is where they're going with this, um, 
I, I just would say, you know, tread very carefully, right? Because there is an extraordinary danger, as we've seen all over the world, with populist demagogues, nationalist, xenophobic dem- demagogues, and especially in his- uh, Sri Lanka, given the history of Singhala Buddhist nationalism, the danger that, you know, someone could capitalize on this resentment because of the, the government's attempts both to sort of avoid these issues and also, frankly, the backing of external actors like the U.S., India, and Japan, which recently, you know, celebrated the appointment of Raniel. So I think we need to be really cautious here and, and really think about what it means to um, offer an alternative solution to this decaying neoliberal order. And so I guess the last um, point I just, you know, wanted to make here really is that, you know, Sri Lanka is at the forefront of a debt crisis, right? I mean, Sri Lanka really is at the forefront of a major crisis that is affecting developing countries all over the world in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, the UN Conference for Trade and Development, they put out an update this year. They said that the debt to GDP ratio for developing countries has increased from 57 to 70 percent. We might start seeing a wave of defaults. So Sri Lanka really is going to become sort of the experiment, the laboratory for, for changes that will be applied to other countries I think as, you know, a group of socialist activists, right, uh, believing in international solidarity, we need to think instead about democratizing the global order. And so what does that mean like mean for the case of Sri Lanka? Thank you very much. The Socialism Conference is back. The largest socialist conference in North America returns this September 2nd through 5th in Chicago. And registration is now live. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, abolitionists, and socialists for four days of discussion and debate about radical politics, history, and strategy. Participate in panels, lectures, and workshops on class struggle unionism, police and prison abolition, black feminism, reproductive justice, working class internationalism, capitalist crisis, tenant organizing, Palestinian liberation, and much more. Speakers at Socialism 2022 will include Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, David Harvey, Harsha Walia, Derricka Purnell, Olufemi O. Taiwo, Kim Kelly, Muhammad El-Kurd, Anand Gopal, Sophie Lewis, and many more. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register today. Register before July 8th for the early bird discounted rate. Once again, that's socialismconference.org. Thank you, Derek. Lots of really, really interesting thoughts there. And thanks for unpacking for us the basic political economy of, of the situation. I think ending in a lot of uh, really productive angles that uh, hopefully we'll explore more in the other presentations and also in Q&A about the future right, um, um, of democratization um, of the pro- political horizon. On that note, I'll pass it to uh, Rohini, who will give uh, um, a slightly different angle towards what's going on today. So, Rohini, feel free to take it on. Yeah, I'll, I'll be looking at the political dimensions of the crisis. Let me start with the childhood memory. My father was Tamil, and we were living in a predominantly Sinhalese suburb of Colombo. One day in May 1958, our Sinhalese neighbor Manike, who was like a member of our family, came over in great distress, insisting that we leave our home at once and go somewhere safe before because a bloodthirsty mob was heading our way. 
At around the same time, my mother's former student, Yasmin, who had become a family friend, also Sinhalese, came over in a car offering to shelter us at her parents' place. My mother had been for a walk, so my parents knew that Tamils were being attacked. But at that point, they refused to leave. They packed off my brother and me and our Tamil grandmother in a taxi with another Sinhalese neighbor to stay with our other grandmother and started making Molotov cocktails to defend themselves. By this time, Manike was frantic and threatened to commit suicide unless they left. They finally agreed, and yet another Sinhalese neighbor drove them in his car to Yasmin's parents' place. Thirty years later, when I was doing research on Sri Lankan refugees and internally displaced people, I came across numerous similar stories in which Tamils had been saved by Sinhalese friends, neighbors, colleagues, or even total strangers. To me, these stories encapsulate the divided soul of Sri Lanka, hatred and violence on one side, and compassion on the other, racism on one side, anti-racism on brutal authoritarianism on one side, a stubborn pursuit of democracy and human rights on the other. The divisions were already present at independence in 1948, when J.R. Jayavodana, leader of the United National Party, or UNP, and SWRD Bandaranaika, who later became leader of the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, or SLFP, agreed on one thing, depriving around a million Tamils of more recent Indian origin, most of whom were plantation workers in the Central Hill country, of their franchise and citizenship. During the parliamentary debates on these bills, the left parties, the larger Trotskyist Lanka Samasamaja Party or LSSP and the smaller Communist Party, argued vehemently against them, denouncing them as racist, anti-democratic and an attack on workers' rights. The strength of the left and the labor movement in this early period can be gauged from the success of the Hartal or nationwide general strike they launched in 1958 when the UNP government tried to abolish the highly subsidized rice ration on the advice of the World Bank. In 1956, Bandaranaika and his SLFP came to power on the promise of making Sinhala the only official language. The Official Language Act discriminated against... <coughs> excuse me discriminated against Tamil-speaking people in government employment, <coughs> and peaceful protests were launched against it. On this occasion, too, the main left parties opposed the bill, although a breakaway section of the LSSP supported it. In 1957, responding to the protests, Bandaranaika signed the Bandaranaika-Chelvanaikam Pact, recognizing Tamil as the language of a national minority and of administration in the northern and eastern provinces. But a year later, in response to a militant agitation by right-wing Buddhist monks, he renounced the pact, leading to a campaign by Tamils in Jaffna, blacking out the Sinhala letter Shri, which had been substituted for English letters in vehicle numbers. This was what sparked off the 1958 anti-Tamil riots in Colombo and elsewhere. As the violence threatened to rage control, Bandaranaika handed over authority to the governor general, who declared an emergency and clamped down on the mobs. 
angry with Mang Daranayaka for not going far enough, an extreme right-wing Buddhist monk organization assassinated him in 1959. His, wid- his widow, Sirima Mandara became leader of the SLFP, which was elected to power in 1960. In 1964, she negotiated an agreement with Indian Prime Minister Shastri to deport over half a million Tamil plantation workers to India. In 1964, the LSSP and CP entered into an alliance with the SLFP and in 1968 formed a united front with it, which came to power in 1970. I feel this was an unmitigated disaster. The left disintegrated as principal members of the parties broke away and then split again. In 1970, the United Front government introduced a university entrance system that discriminated against Tamils, creating a group of frustrated and embittered Tamil youths. Paradoxically, in 1971, there was an anti-government uprising by the Janata Vimukti Paramuna, or JVP, which combined Sinhala nationalism with an authoritarian brand of socialism and drew its membership and support precisely from those sections of the population who should have benefited from Singhala only. The uprising was crushed and anti-Tamil policies continued. In the name of nationalizing the plantations, plantation land was distributed to Singhalese government supporters. Tamil plantation workers and their families were assaulted and driven out. Their dwellings looted and burned. Some were killed and others were left to starve. In 1972, a Republican constitution was enacted. Ironically, the same Colvin R. De Silva of the LSSP, who had in 1958 warned that Singhala only would result in two torn little bleeding states, now presided over the drafting of a constitution which entrenched Singhala as a sole official language, provided a special status for Buddhism, and omitted the protection of minority rights. After the UNP headed by J.R. Jayawardena won the elections in 1977, he enacted a new constitution in 1978, uh, as they were commissioned further centralizing almost unlimited power in the hands of the executive president himself and omitting the right to life. Freedom of expression and other democratic rights were crushed he set up the Jataka Sevaka Sangamaya, or JSS, supposedly a union, but more like a government-controlled mafia. JSS gangs were used to intimidate and kill opposition supporters and judges who gave verdicts against UNP criminals. They were used repeatedly against workers and trade unions to break strikes, assault and kill trade unions, and get members of existing unions dismissed. It was obvious that the JSS had protection from the very top because the police never acted against them, whereas around 80,000 public employees who opposed them and went on strike lost their jobs. Starting just a month after the UNP took office in 1977, the JSS was used to assault and kill Tamils, loot and burn their shops and homes and drive them out of the areas where they lived. In 1979, 
the Prevention of Terrorism Act and provisions of the Public Security Act were used as a cover for the torture, disappearance, and killing of thousands of Tamils by the state. Then in May 1981, violence broke out in Jaffna, and the targets of widespread arson attacks included the Jaffna Public Library, with its 95,000 volumes and priceless manuscripts. This was followed by island-wide pogroms against Tamils, which were only overshadowed by the even more gruesome massacres of 1983, which left thousands of Tamils dead and turned a simmering conflict into a civil war between the Sinhalese state and Tamil nationalist militias fighting for a separate Tamil state. The most ruthless and powerful of these, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, or LTTE, became, the domin became dominant by slaughtering its rivals. Tamil socialists were demoralized. Some drifted into Tamil nationalist parties and militant groups, while others were killed or driven into exile by the LTTE. The fighting in the North and East halted temporarily after Jayawardhan signed an accord with Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi in July 1987, <coughs> granting Tamil the status of an official language and providing for limited devolution of power to the provinces. Fighting shifted to the rest of the country as a JVP launched its second insurrection. Its response to anyone who opposed them inside or outside the organization was invariably violent. The state controlled by the UNP responded with indiscriminate slaughter of Sinhalese youth. This is what resulted in the gruesome atrocities and massive death toll estimated at 40,000 to 60,000 during the second JVP insurgency which ended in November 1989. On the pretext of fighting the JVP, government death squads killed unarmed critics, political rivals, and even dissidents within the UNP. In 1990, fighting between the state and the LTT broke out again. Ranil Vikramasinghe, the current leader of the UNP, was a senior member of the government throughout this period, and therefore shares responsibility for the mass murder of both Sinhalese and Tamils, most of them unarmed civilians. What we see here is the trajectory that has led to the political crisis in 2022. On one side, working people have, in, have been divided and weakened again and again. On the other side, power has been centralized more and more, allowing the executive president leeway to appoint cronies to key posts and destroy the economy. The struggle over the constitution is crucial from this point of view, and it has had a roller coaster ride, partly because courts have held that changing crucial elements of it, like abolishing the executive presidency itself, <laughs> requires a two-thirds majority in parliament as well as a simple majority in a referendum. When Chandrika Kumaratunga was elected president in 1994 on the promise of ending the war and abolishing the executive presidency, Democratic rights were mostly restored in the parts of the country under government control. But the LTT sabotaged her efforts to end the war. Nor did she succeed in abolishing the executive presidency. But the 17th Amendment to the Constitution was passed, taking away the power of the president to unilaterally appoint people to institutions that ought to be independent, like the Election Commission and Supreme Court. 
In 2005, Kumaratunga was succeeded as president by Mahindra Rajapaksa, who was then in the LSP. Human rights violations against Tamils increased sharply. In the South, freedom of expression came under severe attack and death squads targeting critics of the government resurfaced. Gotabaya Rajapaksa was the defense secretary at that time, and he was responsible for most of these violations. As the war moved towards its terrible end in 2009, the UN estimates that around 40,000 civilians were killed. The presidential election of January 2010, in which Mahindra Rajapaksa came back to power, was marked by massive irregularities. His coalition won the subsequent parliamentary elections, and one of his first priorities was to pass the 18th Amendment that reversed the reforms introduced by the 17th Amendment. It also abolished the term limit on the presidency. A new enemy was found to rally the Sinhalese masses behind the Rajapaksas, Muslims. State-sponsored far-right Buddhist monk groups sprang up, driving Muslims from their homes and businesses with arson and murder. When the presidential election of 2015 was announced, with Mahindra Rajapaksa standing again, it should be obvious why voters from ethnic minorities would oppose him and vote for the Yahapalaniya Alliance, a fragile alliance between an SLFP rebel, Maitripala Sirisena, and Ranil Vikramasinghe of the UNP. But minorities alone would not have been able to defeat Rajapaksa. It was widespread disgust among a substantial section of Sinhalese voters with the scandalous nepotism and corruption of the Rajapaksas that tipped the balance against them, along with courageous campaigning and monitoring of the election by democracy activists. Leaders of the LSSP, Communist Party of Sri Lanka and Democratic Left Front continued to support the Rajapaksas, expelling members who disagreed with that policy. They remain in the same position to this day and therefore share responsibility for the current catastrophe. Sirisena was elected president in January 2015. Vikramasinghe became prime minister in the new government. There were some improvements. The 19th Amendment severely curtailed the powers of the president. The revival of freedom of expression allowed long-suppressed grievances to be voiced in public. Some of the land occupied by the army was returned to its Tamil Oman owners, and there was a weak attempt to protect Muslims from mob violence. Investigations into the crimes of the previous regime also began, but problems soon surfaced. Vikramasinghe's neoliberal policies were unpopular, and a bond scam in which his protégé was involved sullied the image of the government. He was also accused of holding back on prosecuting major crimes by Gotabaya and his son, despite adequate evidence being available. Accusations that recently gained new credibility a few days ago, when Gotabaya chose him as a new PM despite the fact that Vikramasinghe lost his seat in the general elections and his UNP got less than 250,000 votes out of over 16 million. On the other side, Sirisena started drifting back to the Rajapaksa camp as well, now headed by their new party, the Sri Lanka Podujana Perumuna, or SLPP, 
and he started acting as their agent. The final blow to the Yahapalanya government was the Easter Sunday bombings of 2019, which killed over 250 people and allowed Gutabir to campaign in the presidential election on a plank of national security. Yet it emerged soon afterwards that mastermind of the terror attacks, Mohammed Zahran and his associates, were being protected and bankrolled by the Rajapaksas themselves. Given this dreadful morass, the 2022 crisis is as much political as economic. For me, the greatest cause for optimism is the emerging unity between people of all communities, as well as the participation of women and young people in large numbers. Activists have a good chance to spread the message that tolerating the oppression of some members of society leads to divisions that make it easy to attack the rights of all. But on the other side of the equation, tackling the huge concentration of power in the hands of a brutal dictator without allowing the situation to descend into violence and chaos is more challenging. The Bar Association of Sri Lanka has proposed a roadmap that includes, among other things, the creation of an interim government which introduces the 21st Amendment, repealing the 20th Amendment and plugging the loopholes of the 19th, abolishes the executive presidency within 15 months, dissolves parliament within 18 months and acts as a caretaker government for a further six weeks in order to hold fresh parliamentary elections. The first step appointing an interim government that will carry out this agenda is in some ways the most critical. It will require sustained pressure from the democracy movement and possibly an indefinite strike until it is accomplished. But it also needs MPs to lead the effort in parliament. Who could these be? The Samagi Jana Balavegia led by Sajid Premajasa is by far the la largest opposition party and has apparently agreed to the BASL proposals. The Tamil National Alliance is the next largest and has played a progressive role in parliament. It should be part of an interim government along with other minority parties which have opposed the Rajapaksas. But they will have to resist being bamboozled or coerced into joining a government appointed by Kotabaya. The JVP is the third largest and has played a progressive role in the struggle for democracy. But its leader, Anura Kumara Disanayaka, will have to understand that forming an alliance with the SJB is necessary in order to move forward. The opposition parties need to enter into urgent negotiations on how to proceed, taking the advice of advocates of economic and social justice, as well as democratic and human rights advocates. As for the SLPP and parties who have been allied to it, including the SLFP and the Tamil Muslim and left parties, they are jointly responsible for the current catastrophe. In a longer term sense, so are Ranil Vikramasinghe and the UNP. They all belong in the dustbin of history. I'll stop there. Well, thank you so much. A lot, a lot tackled in there. The whole history of uh, modern day Sri Lanka and giving us a good overview of the forces right now in the protests. Thank you so much for that, Rohini. And I think we can return to some of these points that uh, you're gesturing towards later in the Q&A as well. Um, so I'll pass it on to our last speaker, Anthony. Feel free to take it away.
Um, first, thank you so much um, for organizing this discussion um, and for including me, uh, especially to Promise and uh, to others who have uh, been actively um, engaged in putting this event together. Um, so Devaka and Rohini have uh, outlined both the, the kind of macro picture of the economic crisis and the long history of uh, politics uh, in Sri Lanka. Um, I would like to focus my comments on how the crisis is uh, being felt on the ground um, and the very significant resistance that uh, we have seen emerge in Sri Lanka in, in the last uh, several months. Um, I want to stress that um, in Sri Lanka, time and again, uh, working people have provided opportunities for transformative change. And it is the, the political class that have betrayed um, um, and squandered those opportunities again and again, um, as you know, we just saw in, in Rohini's talk as well. Um, the past week was a crucial one. Um, we are still trying to process and make sense of uh, what has been an intense week. Um, it began with the brutal attacks on peaceful, nonviolent protesters on Monday. Uh, the protesters were demanding mainly for the resignation of the two brothers, the Rajapaksas, who were holding on to their positions as president and prime minister, uh, and mainly for failing to address the economic woes people are facing, um, having to wait in long queues for petrol and cooking gas, our long power cuts every day um, and food shortages and skyrocketing prices. Um, Mahinda Rajapaksa resigned from his prime ministerial post on the same day, but only after instigating violence, um, his supporters were invited to his official residence for a meeting um, and soon after went on to threaten and physically injure protesters um, and also burned down the tents set up at the occupation sites um, that had come up a month ago um, outside his home as well as the presidential secretariat. Um, interestingly, the, the Gota Gogama, um, which is the, the name given to the occupation site, um, around which various protests have been converging uh, lately, was once demarcated as the agitation site by President Gotabir Rajapaksa himself as soon as he assumed power in 2020 um, on a majoritarian nationalist platform and promising to be an efficient and technocratic leader. Um, so the agitation site for him was uh, you know, seen as creating, um, created for the protesters to use. Um, he wished that, you know, that would reduce the nuisances and disruptions uh, protests will otherwise cause and uh, an attempt to try and contain dissent within a few square meters. Um, I think little did he know that just two years down the line, the site will become the rallying point for various groups representing every section of society from all over the country. Um, and that the protesters will actually occupy the space 24 seven um, with the sole demand of seeing him vacate his post. Um, Amidst the almost nonstop snow glaring, we have seen teachings and talks and events being organized by various groups um, on the site. Um, a library um, 
a people's university, um, a theater, which is called, um, which has been named Tear Gas Theater, um, health clinic, legal aid clinic, have all uh, been set up in, in that space. Um, people have found many creative ways to express their demands. Um, music, art, theater performances have all you know, been regular features um, of the protests. Uh, and even some traditional rituals to try and chase the the, the Rajapaksa spirits away. Um, the resistance that has emerged with uh, a bold slogan of Kota Go Home um, was actually the culmination of other related, uh, but not necessarily uh, connected um, protests. Uh, various sections of the working class, farmers collectives, women's groups, um, have been engaged in uh, different protests over the last two years. Um, and of course, eventually sections of the middle class and the elites in Colombo also joined the movement uh, in the last few months. The, the long power cuts and the sweltering heat um, in the homes pushed those from even the most affluent neighborhoods of Colombo um, to come out to the streets um, and engage in, in protests. Um, so the point I want to make is that the running thread in all of um, these protests that we've seen emerge um, and has become much more apparent as they have converged to a certain extent is that they were resistance to the political project of authoritarian neoliberalism. Um, so let me just uh, share a few examples of you know, um, some of those protests. Um, in the latter part of last year, uh, farmers protested um, the erratic uh, move by the president to impose a fertilizer ban that has severely affected food production. Um, Sri Lanka was once self-sufficient in rice and is no longer so. And uh, we fear that we're going to go into a severe food crisis um, very soon. Um, there was also the teacher unions that went on strike last year, demanding to fix salary anomalies. Um, Sri Lanka boasts of free education along with free health. Um, and I guess it's one of the few places globally that has non-fee levying public education all the way up to university level. Um, however, government spending in education has been uh, dismally low in the last several years. Um, it is the second lowest um, in, in South Asia. Um, as uh, Rohini mentioned, um, in the post four years, Muslims had become the main target of majoritarian Sinhala Buddhist um, groups, as well as uh, the government. Um, we also saw uh, when COVID um, struck uh, that the Muslim minority groups uh, launched a campaign against a regulation that was enforced. Uh, forcing cremation of um, the bodies of those who had died of uh, COVID-19. Um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, workers in the export processing zones were forced to work. Um, they had to keep the foreign dollars flowing in, uh, even as tourism and other sectors took a huge hit. Uh, but they were made to work under unsafe, unsafe conditions with no proper quarantine facilities, and compensation for lost work time, loss of jobs. 
we noticed that in the recent protests by the factory workers in in export processing zones one of the slogans that uh, they raised was uh, where have our hard earned dollars gone um the plantation workers who have been living under um extremely poor poor conditions um who also disenfranchised um after sri lanka gained independence uh they have been launching a long campaign for um winning rupees 100 way uh, rupees um basic wages uh the last time um, that i remember that when golf phase promenade was filled by thousands uh of youth um of up country tamil descent um was um when they came out in protest uh for demanding the rupees 1000 uh, wages uh, to be given to the workers um these examples demonstrate the resistance to the different ways in which authoritarian neoliberal project projects are thrust on people um the way in which uh, you know global capital interests were prioritized at the detriment of food security and with very little regard for people's lives uh the way in which um, state spending on social welfare has been gradually cut um you know into sectors like education health social, social security programs and by creating ethnic hatred and divisions among people uh preventing any kind of class solidarities from emerging um and and different governments have been at it but it has been uh, particularly a, a forte of the rajapaksas um and they are rule uh this week we will also remember the many lives that were lost um particularly during the uh, end of the civil war um in the war ravaged regions of the north and east of sri lanka um along with demands for accountability for wartime violations and truth seeking for the disappeared we've seen in the post war years uh, how people have resisted against the militarized dispossession um particularly you know we saw continuous protests demanding for the return of lands held by the military um there have also been protests um in the north for example and the east um against the dispossession uh, dispossession through financialization uh women's groups and cooperatives protested against finance companies uh that had uh, indebted um women through microfinance microfinance loans um uh, microfinance loans um sorry about that um we also saw the the protest by uh the fisher folk in the north in particular small scale and artisanal fishing folk against large scale fishermen and bottom trawlers from india crossing over causing a huge huge dent um in their incomes but also depleting the fish stock um with their unsustainable fishing practices um so when these struggles have also emerged um in spite of the dominant ethno tamil nationalism that tries to frame the problem only um in narrow ethnic terms um including the you know the disregard by some of the political representatives towards these issues who um represent the capitalist middle class and upper caste interests 
Um, so if we speak to some of these groups um, about the current resistance and ask them about the current moment, um, they will quickly tell us that they have always been struggling against the dispossession brought on in various forms by the state and uh, by global interests. The question now um, is, um, you know, how can these protests um, move forward in, in, in the current moment? Um, could it be a moment where resistance to authoritarian, majoritarian, and neoliberal ten tendencies of the government um, converge uh, in order to make for um, you know, lasting political change in the country? Um, for example, can this be a moment where changes to the structures of governance can be seen in the abolishment of the executive presidency? Um, that was introduced in Sri Lanka along with the neoliberal turn uh, in the late 1970s? Um, or can we see the removal of the Prevention of Terrorism Act um, that has mainly targeted um, Tamils and Muslims and minorities in, in the country? Um, and will this be a moment um, for um, more space being created for the participation of working people in, in democratic processes of the state? Um, while I think protests have multiplied, the message, however, hasn't seemed to have reached the, the political class yet. Uh, the tone deafness was amply demonstrated by the appointment of Ranil Vikram Singh as prime minister last week. Um, we see um, that the economic crisis, as you know, Devaka has, has explained, uh, was a problem caused by Sri Lanka's um, involvement in the international markets, the international sovereign bond borrowings, the balance, balance of payment crisis. We are now being told that the solution is also going to come. Uh, we are um, an international savior, the, the IMF. Um, the way in which the political fallout is being solved um, is also interesting um, because we now have a neoliberal prime minister who couldn't even win a seat in parliament and an authoritarian president um, who has completely lost credibility uh, in the eyes of the people. Uh, this is, appointment is being enthusiastically welcomed by international actors, including those in the West. Um, although it is being seen um, by people in Sri Lanka uh, as an appointment that is um, detrimental to um, democracy and also people's struggles. Um, and at the same time, the, the urgency on the ground, uh, you know, the, the destitution, the poverty, um, because of this economic crisis is already quite observable. Um, and the need to formulate a plan for providing immediate relief to people and address the looming food crisis um, have been voiced. And this uh, has come mainly um, from women's groups who are most urgently being um, affected um, by, by, by this crisis. Um, so I want to stress here that Sri Lanka is already implementing aspects of the IMF program, as, as Devaka mentioned, even before signing the agreement. And there are sections of Sri Lanka's elites um, who are supportive of these measures, almost wanting to prove to be the, the good exemplary child for the IMF. Um, our foreign exchange, as Rohini mentioned, um, 
is earned mostly by women working in highly exploitative conditions um in in uh, in the tea plantations in garment manufacturing in export processing zones and as migrant domestic labor um abroad these changes to uh, to the nature of women's labor was brought about through the structural adjustment program implemented by the IMF in the late 1970s um many of the rural um employment opportunities um were ignored at that point um and um feminist economies have wound as even as early as in the 1980s when sri lanka was just beginning to implement liberalization programs that these changes will occur only by mortgaging women's lives um the crisis eventually is is felt at the household level where women are expected to somehow find ways to put food on the table even when food costs are skyrocketing and there's no cooking gas um in the shops and while their livelihoods have depleted uh in these last two years um so the the social reproductive work that women do which is not recognized um um or valued um is becoming more visible in this context um and um we can see that um how uh, these macro policies are having an impact on on women's lives um and women have uh, actively put forward um alternatives to the way in which um this crisis should be addressed and as deva mentioned already um the urgency to create a food distribution system at affordable costs uh, and to provide um, adequate social security to help people get through this crisis uh, have already been put forward however we are being constantly told and that it's the experts who know how to solve the crisis um and the the resistance from the ground um is is constantly being undermined um so i think i'll i'll stop my my talk here um with the question of um how are we going to actually see um protests um continuing in in this context um there seems to be a need um to um come up with immediate alternatives uh, for people um in terms of alternative economic policies um as well as um addressing the the political crisis uh, that we are in at this moment um thank you thank you so much nathan um yeah i think that was a great uh great way to wrap up um the different presentations with more of an update with the situation on the ground on that note i'm going to compile a couple of questions that i think were floated in uh through the youtube chat and to kind of one or two uh, a short series of questions and maybe each of you can uh feel like you can jump on and address what uh, whichever parts of it uh that you feel like you can well so I, so it sounds like one um one larger question right is you know, what are the what's the kind of political character right of the different forces and demands on the ground um you know someone in the chat mentioned you know why isn't um is canceling the debt right a central demand of protesters it sounds like uh, the the key demand is the is calling for the rajapaksa brothers uh resignation um is is the demand to cancel the debt also on an equal platform or is it being less discussed and and more discussed in the margins and if so uh why is that right which i think 
goes into uh, another question that was floated in the chat, right? About, um, yeah, I think addressed to Rahini, but I think others can jump on too. Is is what is the what is the unity like between uh, 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 Sinhala and, and and Tamil protesters on the ground? Has that been robust? What is the future of that? Um, uh, who is more dominant on the ground, um, etc.? And on the on the flip side of that, right? And um, maybe Devika or someone else uh, wants to mention this is another question in the chat, which is, what is the political like? What is the historical, historical basis of ruling class power um, in Sri Lanka, right? The basis of the power economically or politically, and their points of vulnerability. So, kind of a twofold question. One, um, I want to invite the speakers to say more about the current political composition of the different forces and and factions within the protest, and then secondly. Um, what are the different factions and bases um, uh, of the ruling class and, and from, from where do they draw their power? So can feel free to answer any part of that or all of it um, and feel free to jump in if you feel ready. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I can briefly uh, speak to two points in that. One is, um, you know, in the terms of the first, and I mean, I, I you know, I don't have as much um, experience or knowledge of, you know, what's happening on the ground. What I get a lot of it is through news media. So I'm sure others can talk about it more specifically. But this question of canceling the debt, you know, I, I think it's it, it, it would be a goal if it was realizable. But in the current moment, you know, I think we should have that debate about odious debt, you know, and, and and looking at the lending practices, right? Because why is it that just the debtor country is responsible? But I, I think that the challenge is that, you know, really in Sri Lanka, there is this slowly emerging discourse around self-sufficiency. And I think that really needs to be strengthened because ultimately, if you don't have a strong domestic base, nothing is also going to get accomplished internationally. I mean, we do need to have both perspectives in mind, but I, I just think that the, 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 the project of canceling debt, you know, on a global level even, is really challenging. It's an ongoing debate. But in terms of the urgency of this crisis, um, there really needs to be a look at, you know, self-sufficiency and what it means to actually provide people, you know, food and essentials on the ground. So, um, you know, I'm interested to have those discussions, but you know, just to quickly give like a sort of soundbite answer. Um, and that actually is related to the second part, which is this question of the ruling class. And so Sri Lanka historically has had a very comprador uh, elite. And when we use that term comprador, it's to imply that they are in, in many ways dependent on metropolitan capital. And so, for example, you had the plantation system, right? You had um, a, you had uh, you know, primary uh, commodity exports. And that actually sort of, you know, was accelerated or even increased to some degree with neoliberalism, with liberalization in the late 70s, because even though they talked about bringing in foreign direct investment and, you know, Sri Lanka is going to become the next Singapore or Taiwan or wh whichever country they used as a reference, uh, the majority of manufacturing exports have remained garments, you know, I mean, last year it was roughly 43%, but historically it's averaged 50 to 60% of manufacturing exports are garments and textiles. So it's not as if the country has really been able to, you know, quote unquote, progress up the value chain. And so what ended up happening is that the elite have sort of relied on 
now this speculation, especially in real estate. And this is really where, you know, the whole sovereign bond question comes into play, because you see on the streets, they're like BMWs, Bentleys, you know, luxury cars. But then you're asking, okay, where is the production, right? Where, where are actually people, how, how is this money being accumulated? And as we know, most of it is through, you know, the working people, especially working women in, you know, the free trade zones, the plantations and migrant workers. So, you know, I don't think there has been any serious question of revising that production model. It is an ongoing question. I think that, you know, in earlier decades, when there was sort of this question of whether there was a distinction between the national bourgeoisie and the comprador bourgeoisie, you know, that sort of played out where, you know, sections of the left thought, hey, maybe we can industrialize too. But the reality is that, you know, I would say at this point, the elite is thoroughly comprador. And, and that's really where, you know, for them, the IMF is the solution, right? Because then it's like, okay, we regain access to debt markets and we start the cycle all over again. So, you know, the question is whether there's also going to be a reconfiguration within the elite too, in terms of how they accumulate capital. Thank you. Um, if I could just uh, take up, I haven't actually been uh, at the at the protests, but if I look back at the times that I have uh, interacted uh, in Sri Lanka, for example, when I was working with uh, with uh, garment workers, hundred percent Sinhalese ones in in the south, um, on one occasion we had a conference in a conference center, and at the same time. Uh, there was another conference um, at the same center with Tamil young women who had been displaced from the Vanni. And um, these Sinhalese garment workers were really interested to know what was happening uh, to these Tamil young women. And they found they found ways of communicating, which is actually has had become difficult because of the language divide, but they still found ways of communicating. So they, there was that interest. And then when I was doing my research on, on refugees and especially displaced people, um, I was speaking both to Tamil refugees and displaced people, many of whom said, as I mentioned in my uh, introduction, that, that, that they had experienced support and help and uh, in fact, uh, sucker from from Sinhalese neighbors and friends and others. Um, but of course, there was also a lot of Sinhala majoritarianism amongst them, because they felt that it was the Tamils who had, uh, you know, who had declared war and started the war. But I found that changed somewhat after the JVP uprising when. They, the Sinhalese, had been attacked by the state and tens of thousands of civilians, many of them had not at all been in, involved with the JVP when they were killed. This is an, uh, uh, um, a part of the story that is everyone seems to ignore the fact that the Sinhalese too in certain parts of the country have suffered um, mass killings, actually. And in fact, Gotabaya was in, was involved in some of those as well when he was in the army. And I think this, um, the fact that they have this common, these common experiences um, makes it possible 
it won't happen automatically. I mean, there have been nice stories about how Singhala and Tamil New Year were celebrated together, how iftar parties were celebrated on golf face green. But I'm afraid this could all um, trickle away unless there is a concerted effort to to you know to encourage people to think about each other's experiences and to build up solidarity thank you so much yeah anything to add um no i'd largely agree with uh, what has been said right now um there have been kind of symbolic gestures uh, like rohini mentioned right at, at the gota gogama site where um, muslims have been able to come break fast which would not have been possible maybe uh, a few months back um there's some introspection about uh, the role of uh, Uh, the military uh, you know there are armored cars that are roaming the streets of colombo right now um there's repression st stf kind of arresting people um who were involved in in protest struggles um the way um you know tear gas and water cannons have been used on on protesters um including when you know families and children were around um and so around these experiences there's been some conversation about what it may have meant for people to live under um continuous um kind of military presence and and repression uh, in other parts of the country um however i guess that the challenge is is you know how are these kind of movements going to emerge um um there there's there's a tent um in gotagogama for um you know the families of the disappeared who are you know we are there to kind of talk about the issues that they face um and um uh, there are efforts you know for some of those movements to also um come and be pa- participate in in the larger larger protests um but would we see um movements from the south also you know joining protests in the north and the east would we see um you know movements out of colombo uh, to the plantations to the rural areas um and, and uh, show solidarity with some of the the farmer struggles the, the plantation worker struggles um at this level um is is again a, a question um even in in terms of you know um some of the student protests uh, which we very often experience in colombo um there used to be a lot of um um complaining and and disregard for you know uh, student protests and for the first time we saw um including some of the you know middle class sections of colombo applauding them when when they marched into uh, golf the golf face green um so there are these kinds of moments um however uh, if we are to kind of think about of it as you know um more transformative change there also needs to be discussions around um you know the governance structure the state um uh, around you know nationalism um around um, redistribution um um around you know questions around gender and you know around other marginalized groups uh, like sexual orientation uh, and so on right so there, there are lots of things that um uh we are seeing being discussed but there are also lots of things that um are not move have not yet moved beyond the, the kind of symbolic elements um so um 
I, I think you know what Rohini said is important. There has to be concerted effort to build some of these mo- uh, movements uh, at this juncture, um, and kind of any kind of discussions moving forward will have to also um, contend with the hard questions. Um, you know, uh, about the historical aspects of it, but also the, the current divisions in our society. Yeah, thanks for that. And on that note, uh, I'll just uh, piggyback off of that question, ask uh, a question, uh, you know, you're posing to me before this call too, right? How how, how do you all you think resistance can be sustained in the long run, right? What what types of demands and demands to the changes in governance structures? Like what, in, in your personal view, what, what feels like should be the direction forward, right? And and maybe I'll kind of sandwich this question in too, is, uh, is where's the left, right, um, today, right, and the movement and stuff, right? I think it's, it seems like a very vexed question. Sri Lanka's history, especially as Rohini has talked about, the betrayals of, of right, uh, Lanka Samasamaja Party and CP, JVP, all in their various ways, right? And if so, the old left and the JVP, and, you know, now, now they're... Uh, uh, you know, as, as Rahini was saying, should be consigned to the dustbin of history, right? Then, then where, where should the left go from this point on, right? Who are the forces and organizations concretely we can look to? And how does this kind of dovetail with this long-term future-oriented question of, yeah, how, how should we orient ourselves towards resistance? Like, what, what types of longer-lasting structures uh, can we build and should we build? And, yeah, what are the better elements of, of the protests uh, that you've seen? What are the conversations around that? Or what are your own personal recommendations? Um, just to clarify, I wasn't saying that the JVP too should be dismissed right now. I think it's very different from um, the JVP of the you know of the nineteen seventies, eighties, and and eighties. Uh, but I think the um, there is a problem of democracy in the left which um, of the left not seeing democracy as a as a, an important premise in a sense towards for moving towards socialism and that i think has plagued was was one of the things that led to the i think the complete collapse of the old left because they um, they seem to assume that nationalization by itself was a good thing for socialism, regardless of the nature of the state that was carrying that out. And so, for example, when the plantations were nationalized, it was a disaster for many of the plantation workers. They didn't care about that. And then the the fact that um, they can they have been allied with the Rajapaksas, which have you know the the sort of ultimate. Um, ultimate uh, authoritarian uh, regime uh, is would be un, uh, almost unbelievable if they did, if they had any commitment to democracy or saw democracy as i think it is a, a precondition for social moving towards socialism and um, thirdly i think one of the things that attracts them to the rajapaksas is this anti western rhetoric for example after the war when in the UN Human Rights Council there was an attempt by some of the Western countries to say that there should be an investigation into war crimes. Uh, Mahindra Rajapaksa, who was then the president, uh, basically said uh, this is a Western uh, intrusion 
into our country, we will not allow it, etc. And um, then there was this turn towards China. And again, I think this is not peculiar to Sri Lanka. There are sections of the left worldwide which don't seem to think that authoritarianism is a problem, which uh, think that turning against the West uh, and turning towards authoritarian regimes in other countries is fine. Um, So I think this is one of the problems that really we need to work on because there are very deep-rooted cultures, as Niantini was saying, not only not only political uh, state authoritarianism, within the family, within schools, there's this uh, militarization. Um, all, All of this needs to be resisted. And we need a left which basically challenges all that. And there are, there are people on the non-party left who do it, but some way of coalescing and uh, playing a, a much bigger part in the current protests would be needed. Um. Well, I think there are some, you know, certain things that um, we we can already see um, people kind of voicing quite strongly, right? Um, so, you know, there's the go go to go home slogan, uh, but closely linked to that is the abolishment of the executive presidency itself, right? And I feel like if you know this is a moment to, um, you know push on that and and make sure, you know, that happens. Um, And there seems to be, you know, broad interest in in ensuring the the presidency is abolished. Um, Second, of course, you know, there's been a lot of campaigning around the Prevention of Terrorism Act. Um, And again, I I, I feel like that's a moment, you know, that we we can, again, um, think about um, and push for some change uh, in that area. Um, on the other hand, there are kind of very uh, boring uh, symptoms in the way uh, the emergency regulations have been drafted and put forward, um, which gives, um, which is uh, lawyers are telling me, and I'm not an expert in this, uh, that uh, it's different to previous emergency regulations. It kind of provides much more space for um, the repressive arm of the state to kind of function. Um, and so, um, it, you know, it's a, a moment for tremendous kind of change, uh, but it's also, you know, we are already seeing um, the clamp back on, on some of those progressive discussions um, that we have had. Um, with the left, um, I guess um, we still haven't seen like a, a clear agenda emerging, um, particularly on the, the, the economic question and, and, you know, how they um, think, you know, we can move ahead. And there has to be um, some consensus forming on, on that question. Um, we've seen in recent past, you know, those with um, parliamentary seats and so on, like uh, the JVP, the NPP, um, restricting their critiques to um, a critique of corruption. Um, um, and I think moving forward, it will be um, important to see, you know, um, how they, they are going to address um, issues around 
um, austerity, issues around um, redistribution, issues, um, you know, the other issues that Rohini also mentioned in terms of uh, minority rights, in terms of uh, the structure of the state, of, um, um, you know, providing um, democratic structures at different levels, and, you know, where people can participate, bringing democracy much more closer to uh, the people rather than be kind of stuck on, on a centralized state. Um, and I feel like these discussions haven't really emerged uh, yet, um, and the left has to, um, you know, get on it pretty soon, I think. Yeah, thank you so much for these answers. I, I know we only have a couple of minutes left, so maybe I'll invite Devika to fold in if you have any thoughts on on that that previous question to final remarks. Um, which which I'm going to frame around uh, the question of yeah, what what can folks do in solidarity with what's going on in Sri Lanka? And this relates to the question of I think uh, I'm personally curious on some of the, the non-party elements Rohini you're mentioning. Like what, what are what are those groups? What are the names? Anything we can follow? Any good media uh, people? Um, and this relates to one of the last questions posed in the chat too. You know, how can we uh, support you know mobilizations, especially workers' mobilization around the garment production regime, right? Unionization, community support, boycotts. Yeah. So basically, larger question. But if you have any final remarks, we have a couple minutes for each speaker, and and we'll wrap up after that. Things we can do, basically. David, do you want to start? Sure. Thank you uh, very much. And I yeah, just want to uh, fully agree with what um, Anthony and Rohini have spoken about. Um, I, you know, in terms of specific groups and organizations, I'll, I'll leave it to, to people who are uh, more aware than me. But essentially, you know, there are these networks that are slowly starting to form. So hopefully we can raise the profile of those discussions. Um, I would say that right now it's a, it seems to be a very disorienting moment because with the appointment of Raniel, there has been this huge shift in the argument to focusing on economic stability. But again, the central argument is that, you know, Gota must resign, right? And, and again, like Anthony also mentioned, leading to this question of abolishing the executive presidency. So these are, these are central demands. They've been central demands of the movement. And so the question is whether they are going to be sort of um, shaped by the interventions of powerful external actors and also what the left in, in Western countries, for example, can do to hold their own governments to account. Because we've seen through decades of, you know, meddling and intervention, you know, what happens eventually when unpopular regimes uh, collapse. So uh, anyways, I just want to leave it there and uh, I'll pass it on to the other presenters. Thank you very much. Um, I just want to come back to something Devaka said earlier in terms of the this um, consensus of international financial institutions, which that you can lend to to the rich basically to do what they like with the money. I mean, it's been spent in such wasteful ways on on uh, total white elephants in Sri Lanka, and then the people who have to pay back are the poor, and that's totally unjust. It needs to be attacked more generally. In Sri Lanka, it's been disastrous, and it has been disastrous in many other countries. It may be, it should be attacked um, worldwide. And that, I think, will help Sri Lanka as well. Um, and just, just quickly, just one comment. Um, uh, I think they have a post, is Sri Lanka a forerunner? Um, in, are we going to see um, other developing countries 
also defaulting. Uh, and if so, and we also saw even the IMF and World Bank kind of raising concerns about it. Um, will there be a, a, a shift globally in terms of um, how this problem is going to be addressed? And um, some conversation and solidarity around those issues would be important. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, we reached the top of the hour, so we need, to, we need to quickly wrap up. But but yeah, there are a lot of general conversations here. We we'll, hope we can keep continuing. Um, check out uh, speakers' bios and, and and articles in the Eventbrite. And um, yeah, extremely inspired, especially by all these different mobilizations we can hold accountable with the World Bank and IMF and potentially connect with the struggles in Ukraine right now and, right, and obviously in other parts of the global south. And yeah, just... Uh, you know, someone, you know, more involved with the Hong Kong protests, yeah, really inspiring to see what's going on in Sri Lanka. So I think articulating a transnational Asian mass movement solidarity perspective has been really inspiring to me and listening to everyone here. So on that note, um, uh, I'm going to wrap up. Thanks to everyone here, the speakers especially, and everyone in the audience for coming. And um, we'll see you for uh, the next event. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.